Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Gladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. In our first season, we're learning about Vespers, the evening worship of the Orthodox Church. In today's episode, we will be exploring the biblical context and meaning of the opening psalm of Vespers. In most editions of the Bible, you'll find this psalm numbered as Psalm 104. However, while the text is the same in Orthodox service books, this psalm is numbered in line with a different tradition as Psalm 103. We'll be following the numbering of the Orthodox service books here. Before we jump in, we have a few words of the day to define. In this podcast, you'll hear Father Jeffrey mention the Tetragrammaton, as well as the concept of telos. The Tetragrammaton is the four-letter Hebrew word corresponding to the proper name of the God of Israel in the Hebrew manuscripts of the Bible. In other words, it's God's name. While the ancient pronunciation of this word is lost, you will most often hear this name pronounced as Yahweh. Our second word of the day is telos. Telos is a term referring to the true and ultimate purpose of any created thing. For example, the telos of a knife is to cut. This term has been used theologically to help conceptualize the ultimate purpose of human beings. We begin our discussion today by exploring the genre and style of this Psalm 103. Well, Psalm 103 clearly is one of the hymns that belong to that book of poetry called the Psalms. So it it is, in the first instance, not prose narrative, it's not history, it is simply a song. And we can't lose sight of that in our exploration of what its original purpose was. It was written as a song, in this case, a song of praise, a hymn that gives glory to God for all of his creation. So there's sometimes confusion with the word psalm. What is a psalm? Well, we get the word psalm in English from a transliteration of the Greek, uh, psalmi, which literally just means instrumental music, and by extension, kind of the words that accompany that music. So even if we don't use instruments in the Orthodox Church in our worship today, the fact that we call these hymns psalms indicates that at a certain point that they were accompanied musical poems. Could you contextualize the book of Psalms in the scriptural tradition of the church? Right. So it belongs to the entire collection that we now refer to as the Old Testament, but in the early church was just referred to as the scripture. So it was part of the received tradition of inspired books, which consisted of the Torah, which we know as the the first five books of the Old Testament, the so-called books of Moses, beginning with Genesis also the books of the prophets. And as well as that, we've got the, the history books, and then in it we have the, the Psalms. And they belong to a collection in the Hebrew Bible called uh, the Writings, Ketivim. Uh, the Psalms themselves are called Tehillim, but they, they belong to a kind of larger collection, including things like Proverbs and so forth that are, are considered uh, writings. So outside of the law itself, the Torah, outside of the books of the prophets, outside of the history um, books. Could we take a look at Psalm 103 right now and maybe pick out some major themes that are happening? 
In the first instance, we can set this psalm in a particular category of praise, which has to do with praise or doxology for creation. So it is another one of the creation accounts that we have in the scripture. Sometimes we think of the creation accounts in the Bible. Our mind just goes directly to Genesis, to the first few chapters there, where we have two different creation accounts that are set side by side. But we forget sometimes that, you know, throughout the prophets, uh, in Job, in the Psalms here, we have uh, further accounts of creation. And this is set within a hymn of praise, a song of praise to God as creator. And so overall, the theme here is giving thanks and praise to God for the life-giving power that he has shared in creation and the wonder that we have as human beings in responding uh, to that creation, to that faithful power of the creator. In what ways in this poem do we see a different reflection of you could even say scientific reality than what we are used to. Right. And this would be true of all the different uh, creation accounts that we have in the scriptures. And they, they vary a little bit, but they largely reflect an ancient cosmology or understanding framework uh, of the cosmos. In very simplistic terms, I mean, the heavens are above. You know, you go up to get to heaven. The water is beneath. And the earth kind of sits poised somewhere in between heaven and that the world below and, and the waters. And creation itself is kind of a, a carving out or a separating of the waters in order that something firm can be established in the midst of either the clouds of the heavens or, or the waters that lie above the firmament and, and below the earth. So there's a lot of talk about the separating and creating of this ordered space amidst what is essentially a vision of chaos in a way. The water was seen as a you know, power Powerful symbol of disorder and potentially harm and death. And so the fact that the Creator God enters in and, and creates this space by separating the waters and ordering the waters to make them fertile is what the vision of, of praise is, is centered around in, in a psalm like this one. One of the misfortunes, really, of the modern period in the development of the scientific worldview and then a, an attempt by certain Christians to respond to it is to kind of miss the point, though, of, of all of this. In taking the cosmology of their day, the Jewish people, the people of the covenant uh, of the scriptures, they were not doing anything other than accepting a perception of the world that they had around them and then transforming that into a means of expressing wonder and praise towards God. So we shouldn't read these as explanatory accounts of creation. They didn't receive them as that. They just simply took the kind of stories and ideas of their day and they turned them around into doxology, into praise. We miss the point if we're kind of mine these hymns and, and accounts for explanation of the world as opposed to what they're truly written for, which is to direct us back to the one who is the ordering creator God and the one who has looked after us and provided for us in all these many ways. I heard a metaphor one time uh, along this line of thinking, Father Jeffrey, that uh, what we have in, in poetry, in biblical poetry, would be similar to Van Gogh's Starry Night, this painting that's very artistic and interpretive, whereas you can't necessarily put side by side Hubble telescope photos and Van Gogh's painting of the Starry Night and say, 
which one is more true? Right, because essentially you're asking a different kind of truth out of each of them, right? One is you're looking for sort of sensory reflection of physical reality as far as we can take it in, although even that you know, the scientist will tell you is subject to all kinds of contingencies, right? I mean, what we see isn't what other creatures see. The visible wavelengths are, are different to, to different sets of eyes and so forth. So what is actually true when you look at it in the first place is a debatable point. But truth in a deeper sense, in a, in a sense of meaning and, and so forth, is what poetry in general is aiming at. And certainly the poetry and hymns of, of the scripture are trying to direct us towards. So Absolutely. The account of creation that we get in Psalm 103 is absolutely true in that sense. It's true in terms of directing us to what we really need to pay attention to, that God creates out of an abundance of grace and provides for all of his creation, and particularly in the midst of creation, the human being that is set as his image and likeness. There's so much that's packed into these 35 verses it seems that there's two major aspects of reality that are being poetically contemplated here. On one hand, we have the structure of the cosmos, the, the heavens, the earth, and the waters. But on the other hand, you also have this other aspect of the cosmos of God, the animals, and the human beings. And then finally, at back at the end of the, the poem, God comes back. You have almost this cyclical structure that's going on in this poem. The other thing, I mean, just to set this within its entire framework, of course, is that both at the beginning and the end of the psalm, there is a directive being given by the, the one singing to his own soul to bless the Lord. So we get a, a little bit of this further reflection of that ordering that you're talking about in the inner person himself, in ourselves, right? So this is very much something that someone like St. Maximus the Confessor will pick up on, that ordering of the cosmos, the ordering of the church and the liturgy within the cosmos, but also the, the ordering of the inner human being. And all of these things are, are reflective of one another. And so, bless the Lord, O my soul, begins and ends the entire psalm. But of course, the first directive is to praise God, uh, Yahweh, the, the Lord here, Kyrios in, in the Greek, is where the tetragrammaton is in uh, the Hebrew. That's that unpronounceable name of God that was glossed, you know, in in the Hebrew by uh, Jews so that they wouldn't pronounce it. Of course, by saying Yahweh, we are giving pronunciation to those four characters, but in the Greek it gets translated as Lord. So in, in your Bibles, you will note the Lord here is in all caps. So whenever you see that, you know that that's the name of God himself that is being invoked. So it's not even just a generic invocation here. This is specifically the God of Israel, the one who revealed himself to Abraham and who gave the covenant to Moses and the, the the tablets of the law and called his people and guided his people. And so by the time this is being written, you know, by tradition, by David, the king and prophet, this Lord, who is the God of all, is being invoked in very personal terms. You know, so he is both the majestic God, clothed with honor and majesty, wrapped in light as with a garment, it says. The one who stretches out the heavens like a tent, you know, the same way we could easily pull canvas to cover things like tents. The Lord has stretched out the entire universe. Remarkable power of creation, but the same one, you know, we will go on to see is, is 
intimately involved with his people and caring very deeply for them. So this is a, a very familiar invocation or doxology. It's, you know, it invokes the majesty and grandeur and transcendence of God, but also his very proximity to his people. Could you comment on the relationship of the word heavens and the word sky, as opposed to maybe the word heavens and the, and the word paradise? Yeah, so when we hear the, the term heavens, we spoke a few moments ago about ancient cosmology, where there was indeed a sense in which God dwells above. You know, we, we weren't able to go up in rockets or see deeply into space with telescopes or understand that there's 14 billion light years from one end to the other of the known universe. So heavens, in a literal sense, was above. And that was why the word that is used for the sky, Uranos, is also appropriated for the realm that God dwells in. But we have to understand, of course, ultimately, this is a metaphor. God is not above or, or we below in a, any kind of absolute uh, sense. The heaven and earth are used here as the, the metaphorical way of speaking about the realm of God and the realm that he has set aside for his creation and specifically for us as human beings in the midst of that. And so these two realms that we have invoked throughout the scriptures from the beginning of Genesis to, to the end now of the New Testament in Revelation, we speak about heaven and earth. It's the realm of God and the realm of creation. And what is very clear from the beginning of the scriptures to the end is that heaven and earth were made to intersect, overlap, interlock as it were. And then ultimately, you know, as Christians, we understand that's precisely what's happened in the work of the incarnation and the life, the, the passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Word of God, of, of the second person of the Trinity, whom we know in the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven and earth come together in him. And that was how it was meant to be. So although, yes, we have this ancient cosmology shared by all the ancient Near Eastern peoples, you know, where they imagined the gods living somewhere in the sky and fighting it out or, you know, living their various stories and that we were below here on earth. I mean, metaphorically and symbolically, that, that has a lot of, uh, of meaning and that's captured in, in something like uh, the psalm here. But ultimately, the real meaning of this is that God is in his heaven. And God is the one who occupies that dimension, which is different from the dimension we're in, which is the, the created world. But the whole point of the created world is that it relates back to that other one, that it comes out of it, that it's created by it, ordered by it, directed towards it. And if we know what we're supposed to be doing, we, we live in accordance with that coming together of heaven and earth. It's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's It's always this prayer that heaven and earth are joined as they are in the Lord Jesus, as they should be in our liturgies, in our lives, and they will ultimately be when the new heaven and new earth are revealed. But at the end of the day, you know, it's not that heaven and sky are literally the same place. We use it, we use sky as a metaphor for speaking of that realm of God. The podcast you're listening to reflects only the public aspect of our overall project. For those interested, we actively post new episodes on our private podcast. This private space gives us the freedom to debate, discuss, and disagree about open and sometimes controversial theological questions. To get access to these episodes and to join our online community, you can become a patron of the show. 
We can only continue this work through the generous financial support of our listeners. To become a patron, head over to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom and select which tier of support you wish. Again, that's patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. And now back to the show. The next section I'd love to talk about is that of earth and the waters. So this can be seen through verse 5 all the way through about verse 26 or so this creation account. So in verse 5, you set the earth on its foundations so that it shall never be shaken. You cover it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. So in the early Genesis accounts of creation, as you mentioned before, Father Jeffrey, there was this understanding of God's act of creation. It was one of separating and creating space. And you had these chaotic primordial waters in which God separates, and you have the waters under the earth, and then you have this dome of water above the earth. I always took verse 6 as a reference to the understanding of the dome of waters above the earth. I think it could also be understood as that primordial earth of just the chaotic waters at the very beginning of Genesis, that even the highest mountains were covered by this chaotic strength of water. And then in verse 7, but at your rebuke they flee, at the sound of your thunder they take to flight. And I take that now to be a very direct reference of God's intervention and act of creation. Certainly. Um, and you're absolutely right that creation is often depicted as a series of separations. We see that in that great hymn of creation, Genesis chapter 1. You know, light and darkness are separated and, and, and water and, and land and so forth. The overall message here, regardless of what you think the specific references might be to, but the, the overall message is that God is providing a bounded and safe place for his creation. Uh, part of the ordering of creation is creating that space where we can thrive, where we can develop, where we can grow and become the people we are supposed to be, which, as I said before, is living according to, to the plan, to the, the purpose, the, the telos that the Creator has established for us. So if, if the waters of their own accord are this kind of symbol for primordial chaos and destruction, and of course you can't forget the, the ancient uh, myths around the flood, that mean the, the waters that rose above the mountains even there, right? Uh, and the fact that whether in the creation or in the new creation at the time of Noah, there is this making of a safe place and setting a boundary on the chaos. It's reflected in the psalm too with this lovely playful image of Leviathan, right? Uh, the sea creature who inhabits those chaotic waters, the symbol of everything that could go wrong with water, right? You know, whether you think of it as some kind of living uh, sea creature or whether it's some sort of mythical dragon of some sorts. It gets translated in all kinds of different ways. But in any case, so powerful is the Creator God and so much has He created a safe place for us that even Leviathan is simply a plaything. You know, He's created to, to sport in it. Yeah. So this idea that all of the powers and darkness and threats of water can be set aside, can be bounded and put in their place in order to create a safe place for creation to thrive. And of course, you have to remember that in the ancient Near East, the taming of water was absolutely essential. This is an arid land, and so you didn't want water to be 
threatening you through floods, through, you know, storms and so forth. You needed a good supply in springs, in streams, in order to bring forth the fruit of the earth. You know, and that's why this psalm specifically praises God for all of that sort of thing. So, so not only are the chaotic waters kept at bay, but the waters that are, are actually made very useful, right? You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to the wild animals and the wild asses quench their thirst. And we also have the stream, by the streams, the birds of the air have their habitation. And from your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. And that all brings forth grass so that the cattle can feed, plants for people to use, food comes from the earth. So it's all about making water do something positive as opposed to something quite destructive and negative, which of course was that kind of chaotic primordial vision of water. So in some senses, it's a hymn not only of creation, it's a hymn of water put right. So every natural aspect that is being talked about in this psalm is being praised as something good, as something given by God, and ultimately sustained by God. But if you look down at verse 29, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. There seems to be this connection between God and death. And then in, in verse 30, when you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. Could you talk about the relationship between this idea that we have as Orthodox Christians that God has, through Jesus Christ, has conquered death, but at the same time, in the psalm that we sing or recite every day, there seems to be this honor or praise given to the cycle of death? Psalm 103 is remarkable for this. We've talked about it in relation to other creation accounts, and the gist of other creation accounts seems to be that death is the result of our falling away from God. I mean, this is a pretty important biblical concept that all life is given by God. There would be no life without God creating it and also sustaining it on an ongoing basis. As soon as God forgets about us, as soon as God withdraws his spirit, you know, we are no more. And so a great many of the Psalms, a great many texts in the in the Bible will point you back to, to that reality. And of course, in the early Genesis account, particularly Genesis 2 and 3, the account of the fall, there's this narrative that talks about death coming into the world because we've rejected what God has intended us to do. We're, to be, we're there to be his image in the world. And if you think about that creation of, of a temple in the ancient Near Eastern world, what, what was the thing you set within the temple was the image of the God. Well, the whole of the creation is set out as this beautifully ordered temple in Genesis, and the human being is placed in the midst of it as the image of the God who created it, but with a particular purpose, to reflect and direct everything back to the Creator. That's what images of God are, are meant to do. And of course, we, we fell short of, of that vocation, and that introduces, according to Genesis 2 and 3, death into the world. Death is the result of our turning our backs on God. It's an important part of theology to acknowledge that. What's interesting about Psalm 103 is that it seems in this very ordered vision of creation that God has, has set everything in its place, right? That's the overall gist of what we have here, right? Everything is doing what it's supposed to be doing. 
But there's these cryptic references to death being a really important part of that. Even before we get to those verses that you quoted, I want to mention the fact that there's this lovely reference to the young lions roaring for their prey. So in an ordered creation, where everything is set in its place, where God is providing for all, God is providing prey for lions. Now think about that for a moment. Somebody has to die for lions to eat right? So death appears to be part of this ordered cycle of things, right? There's no hint here that, oh, well, because of the fall, uh, lions are having to go out and eat other animals, and that creates violence and destruction and chaos and disorder and so forth. No, it's all set within specifically a praise that says, look how ordered it is. And so that's the first thing that we have to note here. Death has a kind of place within God's order. And so maybe it's not nearly so dire as a, a sort of narrow reading of Genesis 2 and 3 might suggest. This gives kind of context to that and says maybe more along the lines of our kind of modern appreciation of our contemporary appreciation of science and the environment and everything. We know that death and cycles of life and death are part and parcel of a developing, growing, thriving creation. And so let's acknowledge that. And so you get to those verses that you quoted, where you have the fact that precisely as God withdraws the breath from creatures, they return to their dust, so they die. And then he sends forth his spirit, they are created. So we have death, and recreation, death and life. First point to note is the word for breath and the word for spirit are the exact same word. We've only, we've translated them differently because we think that gives more sense to the meaning here. But you have to recognize that when God takes away the, it's literally in the Hebrew, wind. The breath is, is wind, ruach. So we would translate in the Greek with pnevma, spirit, uh, which is also wind. We have the same play on words in the New Testament as well. So God takes away the spirit from things, they die. He sends forth his spirit and they are created. So death and renewal and so forth. What's doubly interesting here, of course, is the order in which this occurs. Because, you know, we're precisely used to thinking of in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth by sending forth his spirit to create. That's what the hymn of creation is in Genesis chapter 1 talks about. And that's reflected in a kind of micro way in the calling into being Adam, man, and breathing a spirit into him. So he becomes a living being, it says in Genesis chapter 2. And then we return at the end of our life to the dust. So we were created with God's life breath in us, and that life breath leaves us and, and we die. But it's backwards here, you know, certainly at least in the way it's presented, right? That we have the death and returning to dust, and then this creation by God sending forth his spirit. And of course, as Christians reading this, it makes perfect sense because, you know, in the words of a great many early church saints, you know, people like Saint Ignatius, and, and so forth. I mean, certainly the whole tenor of the apostolic church was that we are not yet fully created. We are not yet fully alive. We have yet to do that. When Ignatius is captured in Antioch and being dragged to Rome in chains and goes through all of the different cities along the way, he begs people not to stop that martyrdom, not to intervene, not to interfere and to prevent his death. Because he says, I want to be fully alive. I want to be born. If you stop me, I'll be stillborn. 
And so read in light of that New Testament theology that understands creation is this kind of ongoing process. We are not yet fully created. According to the, the New Testament, the only fully created human being is Jesus Christ. And where does he become fully man? Where does he say it is finished? It's on the cross. And his death and ultimately, you know, his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, he becomes fully created. We have to join him in that. The only way to do that is to die. We have to die. We do it symbolically in our baptism where we die to ourselves and become alive, taking on Christ. But we physically also have to die and be made into the stuff of the earth from which God can then send forth his spirit and create us and renew the face of the ground. And of course, in the Hebrew, there's all that play, you know, ground Adama, from which Adam comes. So the earth and the human being are intricately related. We have this a little bit in English too, because the word human, we get that from humus, which is earth, the Latin term for, for earth. So fundamentally, if we are to become human beings, if we are to be created, we, we have to understand, although there's this beautiful hymn of creation here, we are not yet there. We have not yet been created. If we are to be created, we must die and become malleable clay clay that God can turn into the stuff of creation. So the death is something we that is good. It's part of the process of leading us towards the real life, our real creation as human beings. And that's fascinating because, as I said, we have this somewhat narrow understanding that death is like the consequence of, of sin, which, of course, I'm not taking away from because it, it is actually cutting us off from the source of life. But in the context of this psalm and the way it presents creation as ordered, death has a role to play in bringing us to the place where we can be created, which is ultimately what we're called to do. So to take us to the end of today's episode, I'm wondering if we could tweeze out a couple of the main themes that this psalm is asking us to consider. The first thing we have to just return to again is this idea that God is this gracious, transcendent creator who gives us an awesome, beautiful, generative, ordered, coherent creation to live in. And that, it's a message we forget. You know, we live, a lot of us, in a time when it's easy to be anxious, it's easy to be fearful, it's easy to wonder, you know, what the heck is going on? Where has God got to? Why did he possibly allow us to experience things that we have to and so forth? But to remember, this is good. God is looking after us. The world, if we look at it rightly and refer it back to its creator, and by creator, we now understand, isn't just one point in time setting it in motion and letting it run, but ongoing, involved in taking away breath and giving his spirit in order to recreate and so forth. We should be strengthened in our confidence regarding our present reality, regarding our future. We don't live in a world where we need to be fearful or anxious. God here in this hymn testifies that he's given us the earth for our habitation, for our enjoyment, for our growth and development. We have everything we need to live our world as we're, we're meant to. And of course, 
connected to that is this intricate interconnectedness and interdependence, really, of all of the aspects and facets of, of creation. You know, the earth and the waters that we spoke about, the plants, the animals, human beings, and all of these creatures are, are joined together and can live together. I mean, this is a proto-environmentalist hymn of praise, right? And it has a lot to say to us in our current situation where perhaps we've erred on the side of careless or destructive use of creation. And yet the environmentalism that it calls us to, to recall our first point, is not this anxiety or worry or fear but rather praise of God. If we get praise of God in creation and understanding how things are ordered rightly, then we will get our environmental kind of program and justice lined up in, in the correct way. And connected to that, of course, is what I would call a kind of wider sacramental worldview that if God has given this beautiful place and made it safe for us and made it a place where we needn't be fearful, where we can live, if we choose to, in an ordered way according to his creation, then everything can be related back to God. Everything can become symbolic of God. Everything can become sacramental, as we understand in, in the Christian church. And it's no accident that the very fruit of creation that's celebrated here in the middle of the psalm here is bread, wine, and oil. And of course, this is the very stuff of which we depend upon you know, in our sacramental life within the church. We use bread and wine in the Eucharist. We use oil in the sacrament of chrismation of, and of anointing and so forth. And so this provision that God makes for us is not only celebrated creation-wide, but it has its kind of concentration in a way in the worship of the church. And so you have, you mentioned at the beginning, this you know, mirroring of the different levels of cosmology and you know, we talked about inside even the human person that's mirrored as well. But the, the church has its place within that too, that church, the place where people gather together to give praise to God and celebrate God's creation in the sacramental way. And, and that too is very much invoked uh, in this, these kind of elemental signs of creation that become the basis on which we can commune with one another and with God who is the source of life. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Enacting the Kingdom. For bonus episodes and content, or if you'd simply like to see this show continue, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. See you next time.